Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks, as in Sparks Are Flying, dot com. And when you enter your email, you'll be added to my mailing list as well, and you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area. So tonight I'm excited to have as my guest, Claire Rumor. Claire is a coach, counselor, and professional confidant for men, women, and couples who come to her deeply desiring to understand themselves as multidimensional, sexual, spiritual, and relational beings. Her areas of personal interest include non-dual tantra, sexual shadow integration, emotional intelligence, attachment styles, erotic blueprints, and what she calls conscious hedonism, or the embrace of desire and pleasure as a spiritual path. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Happy to have you. So what stood out for me in your bio is uh, conscious hedonism. So how did you come to where you could claim yourself in the world as a conscious hedonist? (laughs) (laughs) Such a great question. So I believe those words came to me uh, in that package in 2006. And truth be told, I had just moved to the Bay Area and uh, I was anything but rolling in money. And it was a challenging time to get established here. So to keep myself rolling along, I um, loved fantasizing about fine dining or luxury cars or beautiful vacations. And uh, that really motivated me to get established and do what I need to do to get going in the world here. And then I've been oriented towards spirituality and consciousness for many, many years. And to be just a hedonist or just into pleasure for pleasure's sake didn't quite feel congruent to me. So those words came coupled together, and I realized more and more over time, especially as I began not just exploring this notion but studying Tantra and and studying and exploring other realms, that desire and pleasure can contribute to a spiritual path, can contribute to personal development and a deepening of consciousness, awareness, and opening of the heart space. And they're not just a hedonistic pursuit that, that leads one into amoral domains and keeps mm-hmm. you there. So it's been a that really sounds like it kind of, fun and sorry. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say, it sounds like it kind of blends with the non-dual tantra, what you're saying. Yes. Exactly. So can you describe exactly. what that means for people that aren't familiar with that term? Mm-hmm. So non-dual tantra, a more uh, formal uh, Sanskrit word for it is advaita, the, um, this, not that, is looking at how we are all, we are comprised of everything in life. There's nothing we are not because there's mm-hmm. nothing that the divine is not. And so mm-hmm. in non-dual tantra, we're looking at the pleasure principle and what, what what we're drawn to or attracted to as much as what we find 
disgusting or revolting or despicable. Anytime we're rejecting a part of life or rejecting a part of ourselves, uh, we're denying who and what we actually are, which is all of everything, which is the oneness. And so that's also how conscious hedonism plays into non-dual tantra because there's examining what am I drawn to as a conscious practice and then there's the opposite of that, examining what am I repelled by or repulsed Mm. by and how can I love and embrace that also and return Mm -hmm. to my oneness, fully integrate myself. Mm, Beautiful. It reminds me of a friend of mine who um, was hanging around with all polyamorous people. And when he discovered that he really just didn't quite fit uh, as a polyamorous person, but he didn't really fit in the monogamy world either. So he called himself non polyamorous. (laughs) 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 And so I know your journey was something like that where you spent some time um, as a non-monogamous person, and, and now you're something else. So can you tell us a little bit about your story, about your evolution with polyamory? Sure. And I was about to say, I could really relate to this person you're describing. because I find myself in this non-polyamorous or um, post-polyamory <laughs> identity. And um, how it started for me, because I'm philosophically completely on board completely on board with open relating and uh, ethical non-monogamy and any form of relational expression that people are drawn to. And how it started for me was in 1999, I was living in Amsterdam on a study abroad semester. And I was there studying sexuality, gender, and identity, which was my academic Mm -hmm. focus for my undergraduate. And before I left on the trip, I had a fantastic boyfriend back home and I knew we were going to be apart for a few months before he could come visit me in Europe. And uh, I felt very conflicted because I knew I would want to be able to connect with other people while there, even if it's just flirting. But that felt like it would be cheating because the, the only options I knew of were you're in a relationship um, or you're not in a relationship. And to Mm -hmm. be in a relationship and connect with other people, that's cheating, plain and simple. That was the paradigm I was in. So I felt very conflicted. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, wrote about this in a pre-assignment before the semester began. Well, fast forward about three and a half, four months, and I got that assignment back on the last day of class. And the night before, I was at my homestay. Uh, where I was staying that semester and going through the books on the bookshelf, which I had never done that entire three and a half, four months I was there at this um, woman's house. And uh, all the books were in German except one. And the book that was not in German that fell off the shelf into my hands was none other than The Ethical Slut. And once I saw the book, realized what it was, poured through it, was beside myself with excitement. And that next day when I received the assignment back, the academic director next to the part where I had been bemoaning the inter- internal conflict that I had about my partner and then being four months apart in Europe had written, oh, you should read The Ethical Slut. And I just found it the night before. And, wow. Uh, and so my whole world opened up in new trajectories and new vectors. And I uh, really thought and felt strongly this is the Bible for the next level of relating 
that everyone should consider this lifestyle. This is the answer to my prayers. This is a part of my spiritual path. And I was very, very, very excited and became kind of um, an apostle or a disciple or, you know, a big fan and advocate of that book and of the lifestyle. And funny enough, you know, I jumped right in and truth be told, I don't think I was very ethical about any of it starting out. And uh-huh. I created some messiness in my partnership and, you know, just like many people who are new to non-monogamy and especially so young, mm-hmm. I think I was 20, 21. I was just messy and wow. sloppy and it was a big mm-hmm. fiasco in some respects. I did my best, but it was not how I would approach it these days, many years later with a lot more self-awareness and maturity. Mm-hmm. But um, how things have unfolded for me since then, so after that um, experience in Amsterdam and, you know, after the partnership ended a couple years later, very amicably, but it, it, you know, we went our separate ways. And I was single for about five years. And I did a lot of travel in that time and had a lot of different experiences and connections and lovers. and, And that way the lifestyle really worked for me. And I enjoyed it. And then upon moving to California, ironically, excuse me, Northern California, so wait, before you, California. Before you, before you go there, uh-huh. so the, the boyfriend that was going to come and visit you, did he come and visit you in the context of you guys having an open relationship? Or did he ever come to visit? He came to visit, but he had no idea about the book that I had just read and this new lifestyle and relationship style oh, so I that's had formed both of us. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Yes. So I did a little bit of strong arming and convincing and, um, mm. and, you know, kind of steered him very strongly in the direction of this lifestyle. It wasn't really his orientation, mm-hmm. uh, but okay, he went along it. with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Okay. Exactly. So then you go to California. So then I arrive in Northern California, which, you know, in a lot of ways is a hotbed for polyamory, uh, pun intended, but it's definitely an epicenter where a lot of people are exploring. And as soon as I arrived here, I managed to become serially monogamous. And I thought, well, that's <laughs> ironic. <laughs> that's <laughs> ironic. And so my first couple of relationships were more on the monogamous orientation. And, you know, I was still a little bit non-monogamous, at least in my mindset. And, and so this caused some confusion in those. And and then um, a partner, maybe a third or fourth relationship, you know, six or seven years into living in Northern California, uh, that partner was um, actually ended up being very polyamorous or at least oriented towards non-monogamy and polyamory. And then that's when, in some respects, I got a taste of my own medicine. Not that he was intentionally or deliberately messy. It's just that in the context of our relationship was when I uh, came across this concept, uh, this very real experience of attachment styles. And so that's mm-hmm. what began to redirect me from being fully, fully non-monogamous, fully monogamous to something in between that would really nourish my attachment style while I was doing a lot of healing, particularly emotional healing in that era. Mm-hmm. So what, um, for people that aren't familiar with attachment styles, can you define that and what role do they play in relationships? Sure. So ever since I learned about attachment style, they've made such a huge difference for me in understanding 
experiences I've had and, and continue to have in some respect in relating. And so what an attachment style is, is depending on how we bond or don't bond to our primary caregiver, primary caregivers, when we are infants and small children, this heavily influences how we bond or don't bond to our partners in our adult relating. And for some of us, our caregivers, our mothers, fathers, our, um, whomever was tending to us, either did not have a lot of attention uh, to give, a lot of, they didn't have a lot of energy or bandwidth, and so they may have certainly fed us and changed our diapers, picked us up, maybe not immediately when we started crying, but at some point they did. But the nervous system of an infant can register this type of uh, attention as insufficient. And, uh, and so for someone who, ex- or even neglect, if neglect is what happened, many of us were left to cry ourselves to sleep because that was a parenting style for, mm-hmm. you know, many decades. And the nervous mm-hmm. system can register that as, as abandonment. And for an mm-hmm. infant who's very much in a, a primal, a primal orientation, that can feel as if we're being left for dead basically. Mm, and right. um, so this can carry through in our nervous system and often it expresses itself as an anxious attachment. So this would be someone mm-hmm. who's very anxious about, you know, is my partner going to be there for me? Um, is my partner responding soon enough to a communication? Um, where is my partner? You know, these sorts of things carry over into adult relating because our young child self was the nervous system more than anything when we're pre-verbal it's the nervous system that we're relying upon uh mm-hmm. is registering and registering the attention we got or didn't get in these ways and uh and so conversely if our caregivers not only were so attentive but they were invasive with their attention mm-hmm. and even smothering turning mm-hmm. towards us for emotional um soothing as opposed to them yeah. giving us emotional soothing, this can register in a small child or an infant's nervous system as, again, a life-threatening situation, um, but of the opposite sort. It's obviously not neglect, but it's smothering. And so people who had these experiences as youngsters then uh, experience or express more of an avoidant attachment style in their adult relating. Mm-hmm. So they're less likely to, you know, be responsive quickly or, you know, they could use, they are fine with t- plenty of time passing between encounters or, you know, their um, things are, intimacy is deepening and then they disappear, you know, so these are the avoidant mm-hmm. types. So the anxious and the avoidant are categorized under what's called insecure attachment in attachment theory. And then we have the securely attached people who are the ones who in their childhood received, you know, the right amount of attention. It's kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, you know, too hot, too cold, and then there's the just right. And so the secure, naturally securely Wait, attached the, people the receive inse- just the, right. The insecure is the same as the avoidant? So insecure is a category, like an umbrella category, and under that oh. is anxious and avoidant. So these are oh, the, the insecurely Got attached. It. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we have secure, securely attached, 
So those are the people who feel confident that their partners are going to show up for them and be there for them and communicate in a timely manner and, um, and that they'll do the same for their partner. And they also give our fine giving their partner space and they know how to ask for space and you know there's a lot more ease for the securely attached person because their nervous system is neither in hyper arousal so really really activated like an anxiously attached person and the securely attached person's nervous system is also not in hypo arousal which the avoidant you know kind of dis disengaged and and, um, and and just not very actively involved, more wanting to so is, take space. Isn't it, common, and, isn't it common that we have anxious people getting into relationship with avoidant people? And why is that? That is certainly common. And why is that is, to put it very uh, colloquially, opposites attract. So you have a perfect <laughs> pair of opposites there. And... Um, you know, each each duo of, you know, each example of that is going to be different. There's different specific reasons why those people are drawn to each other. But um, from my own personal experience, a lot of the time, and also what I learned through non-dual tantra, we're drawn to people who represent qualities or who seem to possess, embody, or demonstrate qualities that we think we ourselves do not possess. And that mm. sort of underlies a lot of attractions, particularly sexual and romantic attractions. So, uh, for example, I've perceived avoidant types as uh, carefree. They don't have to care. They, they have a lot more freedom. They come and go as they please. They're, you know, they don't wear their heart on their sleeves like I do. Where, and I, I experience myself as caring a lot, sometimes over-caring can't turn off the caring factor mm. and I mm-hmm. um, have to care, have to be vigilant. And so um, there's, it could be said there's a subconscious part of me that in wanting to complete itself is seeking someone who has a quality that I feel I don't possess so I can learn that quality and counter, mm-hmm. you know, or similarly the avoidant person in their subconscious is drawn to someone who is anxiously attached because someone who cares that much, who gives that much, who um, shows up that much represents qualities that the avoidant hasn't cultivated yet, yet Mm -hmm. is striving for in order to complete their self so they can walk through the world as an integrated being. So a lot Mm, of times it's our wounds, it's our wounds, that draw us to the people we're attracted to until mm-hmm. we bring our shadow into the conscious. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's the shadow, sexual shadow integration. I want to hear more about that, but also can you tell me what role these attachment styles play in your relationship style, whether you're non-monogamous, monogamous, monogamish? Like how, how, how can these, the knowledge of, of the attachment theory be helpful in your relationship style? Absolutely. Well, I'll give myself as an example because certainly uh, I don't want to make generalities, but what I have seen in myself upon learning that I was an anxiously attached person, anxious attachment was my um, attachment style my entire life, and I did not know it. But I was wondering for many years, why do I feel so anxious in this relationship? You know, here I am with whomever it was with. You know, here I am 
uh, an intelligent, self-aware, competent, highly functioning adult person, and yet in relationship, I'd feel very anxious and insecure, mm-hmm. you know, wondering, am I, is my partner going to call me back? Is my partner cheating on me? Is, you know, does my partner like me? All these worries and concerns that seemed irrational. Mm-hmm. And so when I learned about the attachment style, then it helped me understand, oh, this is my preverbal nervous system that mm. that is activated and I need to give it attention and do some healing. So as I've been doing that healing, I realized that um, ethical non-monogamy, you know, open relatings was not a match for me because even in the best of circumstances, in, in the sense of the relation, the more open relationship I was in, in uh, during my time in Northern California, you know, everyone knew of everyone. Everyone, everything, everyone, uh, everything was above board. Things were highly communicated and processed. You know, people respected and esteemed each other. Even in in these circumstances, my nervous system was so activated for several years that it was just nearly impossible to enjoy the relationship. And mm. um, you know, on the other side of that relationship, I realized this style. There's nothing wrong with this relationship style. In general, it's just that it is not a match for me at this time because mm-hmm. there's, it's wrought with too many landmines for me that are going to trigger my uh, trigger anxiety in my nervous system, and that's going right. to detract me from healing, not help me heal right, right now. Mm-hmm. And then, um, how does being monogamish fit into that? Why aren't you just fully monogamous? So I also realized that for me, monogamous, completely monogamous, felt like a hiding out. Because mm-hmm. it also felt like, uh, and not to say that it is, I'm speaking for myself, that it mm-hmm. felt like um, a bit of a confinement because I also know mm-hmm. about my personality. I wouldn't have been originally drawn to ethical non-monogamy and the ethical slut book if that wasn't a part of who I am and a part of, and certainly uh, a strong resonance, had a strong resonance mm-hmm. for me. So I know that it's still inside of me and wants to be um, explored in a way that keeps my nervous system in a, in a calm place, shall we say, mm-hmm. not hyper aroused or hypo aroused. Mm-hmm. And so how monogamous, when I learned that term, how, how it helped me, is to see that, oh, there's an entire spectrum. There's not this binary of you're either monogamous, 100% monogamous, or you're polyamorous and anything goes. You know, there's an entire spectrum and expressions. And I know that I'm a very flirty person. I'm a very affectionate person. I'm a very sensual person. And uh, those are aspects of my personality and nature that I love. And in the name of relating, I, of, of being in a monogamous relationship, I didn't want to cut off. It didn't feel true for me to cut off those sides of myself. I want those sides of myself very much honored and appreciated and able to be in my relationship as well. And, you mm-hmm. know, I'm a dancer, and so I, I dance a very sultry type of dance, blues dancing. And, you know, it's very flirty, and, and there's um, mm-hmm. erotic energy that doesn't get overt, overly expressed, shall we say. It doesn't get acted upon, but it's still present. You know, I still want those energies running through me. And so monogamish, that term, it gave space, you know, for these parts of myself, the parts of myself that still love to make out with other people or dance in sensual ways with other people. You know, it gave space 
for these parts of myself to have a place to roam. And so I was very grateful mm-hmm. to learn of monogamish that the, there can still be boundaries and agreements in a relationship. However, they can still be fluid or negotiable or pliable uh, in certain circumstances. Or, you know, they can be revisit, revisited. They're not required to be rigid as I see yeah, a more so traditional then, monogamous relationship requiring. Right. So then when your partner has a sexy dance or a makeout session with somebody, do you, what kind of like boundaries and agreements do you have around that so that you, you don't get into that tweaking place in your nervous system? <laughs> sure. Great question. Well, um, you know, a lot of the time uh, we pre-discuss, you know, so we kind of give parameters like sexy dancing is great. You know, that's on the table. And, um, you know, cuddling with other people, it's on the table, even making out with other people, it's on the table. You know, so we do a pre-discussion of what has a green light. And a lot of times for me, you know, sometimes it's better if I'm not there watching. And that's the way Mm -hmm. I can take care of my nervous system because even though my adult mind is fully on board and and very supportive, that doesn't mean in certain moments that my, um, so I say like my younger child self won't mm-hmm. get activated or or uh, start feeling insecure. And there's a beautiful process called self-parenting uh, that at the end of the day, it says that at the end of the day, we are all responsible for filling our own needs and not mm-hmm. relying on or requiring other people to do that for us. So uh, certainly to arrive at a place of health and maturity such that open relating works seamlessly for you. Like a lot of self-parenting needs to happen. And so I have been and still put a lot of attention into that process for myself. Excellent. Yeah, and I just want to say that for some people, their particular needs might be that they only want their partner to make out with somebody if they're in the room with them. So it's really each individual person has to learn what their boundaries are and what works for them. Absolutely. You really learn what are your landmines, what are the triggers mm-hmm. of your nervous system. Because, again, the rational mind is one thing, but the rational mind will get overridden when the more primal self gets activated and feels threatened. And that's just what so. Yeah. So for me, I look for ways to uh, either sidestep or just flat out avoid, whether it's circumstances or environments where I know my more primitive primal self is going to get activated. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so yeah, that's one of the things I, folks. exactly. Yeah. And it's one of the things that I have my clients figure out pretty early on if they're new to open relationship is how much do you want to know about what your partner did with their other sweetie? Like, and sometimes they don't even know till they try it. So they might say, okay, yeah, tell me everything as, as much as your other partner is willing you know, to share that you need to get consent from your other partner. But um, with your, with their other partner's consent, tell me everything. And then they might go, Oh no, that's too much. <laughs> I tried it mm-hmm. and that was too much. And I don't want to know everything. Just tell me whether you had sex or not. That's all I want to know. <laughs> so sometimes mm-hmm. people have to try different things and see how it lands and not blame the other person for making them feel a certain way because it's an experimentation to see how what's going to work for you. It's all an experimentation. And the thing to keep in mind also is that 
in the experimental phase, we have pretty thin skin because it's very new. We're, you know, newly mm-hmm. born to this experience. And it can be very hard. We're very vulnerable in those moments. However, with practice and also with titration, titration meaning, you know, a few, a, a little bit more exposure or a little bit less exposure um, mm-hmm. in order to find just the right alchemy, we start to cultivate a thicker skin. And a thicker skin, another word for that is resilience. So it's, mm-hmm. it's always a good reminder, and I'm sure you remind your clients that, you know, with time and with experience where they realize, wow, that was very intense, but I'm still here breathing and I'm still alive and my relationship is still intact, you know, with mm-hmm. that evidence, they start to cultivate resilience. Right, exactly. Very good. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Claire Rumer, who is a coach, counselor, and professional confidant. And we're talking about um, the difference between monogamy and monogamish, monogamous and monogamish. And um, I want to ask you another question about that, but if anybody else has questions for Claire, please feel free to call in. The call-in line is 657-383-1132. That's 657-383-1132. And you'll automatically be put on hold, and we'll grab your call as soon as we have a break in our conversation. So um, you talked about how you kind of found place for you. Do you have any other guidelines for people that might – be relating to this where they feel like they're not full-on polyamorous or anything goes, but they don't want to be in the real traditional, you know, you can't even look at anyone else monogamous style of relating. So what other kind of guidelines can people use to find where they fit on that spectrum? Great question. Well, again, I'll share a resource that significantly helped me, and it was created by a a dear friend and colleague of mine named Reed Mahalko, and mm-hmm. he is a wonderful sex educator. And a class of his that I took was called How to Take Your Casual Sex Seriously. And I thought, mm-hmm. that is a really brilliant title. I'm, I'm curious what <laughs> he has to say about it. Because I knew for me the style of relating, or at least the, the form of relating that appeals to me is to have a primary partner and then to have you know, casual encounters that have heart. You know, I'm, for me, my definition of polyamory is to have maybe a primary partner and then a, a, a second in line who's also very significant to me. And, and they're, these are all bona fide relationships, meaning we see each other regularly. There's a lot of depth. Maybe we all spend the holidays together. You know, there's um, a lot of consistency and regularity to the connection, whereas that um, isn't where I'm at at the moment. What appeals to me more is to have a primary partner who I go very deep with and, you know, live life with. And then to have these more, um, you know, maybe a friend with benefits or a lover who comes through town every couple of months or years or, you know, Mm -hmm. someone I love to dance very sensual with, these sorts of things. So the class was interesting to me for that reason. And on uh, the handout he gave, he lists some casual sex protocols that were sort of his best practices from having made all the mistakes. And I feel <laughs> these are words to live by. If someone is wanting to explore, you know, what step or two or eight beyond just monogamous, 
but isn't all the way into this more advanced um, open relating or polyamory. So mm-hmm. I'll give you a couple of examples from the protocols that have helped me. If you're going to be sexually active, meaning having intercourse with someone who, besides your partner, casual sex protocol number one from Reed Mahalko says to limit that intercourse, limit that sex to one time per month because when we have sex intercourse, that's a bonding activity, which will then shift mm-hmm. this casual sex partner to a non-casual sex partner. And mm-hmm. that could generate competition with the primary partner. And if that's not what you're mm-hmm. going for, then he's saying limit sex to one time per month. He also mm-hmm. says limit how you stay in contact or communication. So whenever we're, you know, texting back and forth and doing it frequently, there's a, a dopamine response that gets activated that many people don't know mm-hmm. about or don't mm-hmm. realize. And so that, again, can be a bonding activity between people, which is great if you're bonding with your partner or partners, but if you're wanting to limit how many people you're bonded to, then he's saying limit how much you do a lot of texting or phone calls. And then he says mm-hmm. don't do sleepovers and beware the morning sex because, again, those are bonding bonding mm-hmm. activities. He's like still, you know, enjoy, spend time together, have it be quality time, wonderful time, but keep it very structured, again, so that it, it doesn't start to confuse your emotions and, uh, you know, no trips or weekend getaways, these sorts of things. And also get your sexual needs or social needs met from several sources or people. So kind of spread Mm -hmm. that attention of giving and receiving attention around and uh, get the needs met in such a way where you don't start to bond. So these are examples of the protocols from read sheet and his website is readaboutsex, R-E-I-D, dot com, and I believe these can be found there. And he's a wonderful, wonderful resource uh, for people uh, who need little little exercises or little videos to watch, ideas to complement work they might be doing with you, Sumati, you know, on, on these topics. And I found these yeah, immeasurably totally. helpful. Yeah, Reed's great. I met him Oh, probably 20 years ago at a polyamory conference. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, okay, so I wanted to ask you, we talked earlier about the sexual shadow integration. That's We mentioned that that's one of your areas of personal interest, and that came up in, a, in what we were talking about earlier. So I wanted to get back to that. And um, you were saying that um, you, can't, you, you can't really heal those insecure attachment styles until you integrate your shadow. So can you talk a little bit more about how one would do that? Absolutely. So shadow, let's define what that is. The shadow is an aspect or cell of self or any material of consciousness that is locked or frozen in the subconscious or unconscious. Imagine the shadow being that which is in our blind spot. And it's not just in our blind spot on the surface. It's, embedded pretty far down in our psyche. And so we're uh, usually very unaware of our shadow until it starts to make itself known. For example, me with realizing, wow, this anxiety I've been feeling is not because of an anxiety disorder. It's because there are parts of myself that have not been integrated, you know, parts of my past that have not been integrated that really need my attention. And so there's a number of ways to go about shadow work 
and I'll speak about the work that I do, which is more in the sexual shadow realm and what the non-dual tantra explorers and educators who I studied with, the perspective they hold is that inside of our sexual fantasies are, are direct routes to shadow material frozen in our psyches. And so that might seem counterintuitive or kind of odd, but if you think about it, looking at the content of your sexual fantasies, what draws you, what excites you, what turns you on? On one hand, it seems, well, you know, that's just a hot fantasy. What's so compelling about that in terms of the deep psychic spelunking? But the reality is there are rich themes that allow ourselves to drop below the surface of the initial excitement and titillation of uh, of the content. There are opportunities to access some, some deeper frozen parts of self. And in the drop, we're going to leave that arousal excitement behind usually because that's sort of the initial draw that gets gets us to go to a certain place. It's what a teacher of mine named Rahasya would call the goodies. And so it's the goodies that compel us to explore the fantasy. And then if we allow ourselves to consciously explore it, we'll then drop below the surface and make contact with which usually a part of ourself frozen, a frozen child part of ourself from childhood. And there will be a lot of emotions and even memories locked into that experience. And if we allow ourselves to drop consciously, we can hit an opportunity for catharsis, very deep catharsis, you know, reliving of different memories or, or um, aspects of self or long forgotten moments, whatever it is. They all come rushing out and through. And if we allow the body to fully express the emotion, the feelings, without getting caught in the story, uh, and it takes practice and it's usually helped by being guided and facilitated, you know, we liberate a lot of energy. And then that fantasy or the, the sexual content that arouses us, it, it won't necessarily go away not that we'll stop being excited by that. It just won't be. Yeah, I was going to ask, wouldn't that ruin your fantasy? (laughs) (laughs) It seems like it would. It seems like it would. And so a lot of people avoid this work because they don't want to become asexual. But that is far from what happens, far from what happens. And if anything, we, instead of being fixated, you know, an artist were to be fixated only on the color blue. And that's all they painted with. It's blue, 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 you know, like a, if my fantasy just has to do with this very specific, this and that and that thing and that position with that toy, you know, like my sexuality gets limited, just like the artist's palette gets limited. And so mm-hmm. in the exploration of why is blue so compelling to me, in the exploration of that, I free up my compulsion and my compulsiveness with blue, for example, and then the whole rainbow opens back up. And I have a lot more, um, a lot more laterality, if you will. I can move in a lot more mm-hmm. different directions with my sexuality, or not move at all. And in mm-hmm. the sense of have subtle sexuality and stillness, be be what arouses me. And so, is it possible more to do that alone, or do you kind of need a guide to get underneath the sexual fantasies like, like that? Yeah, well, certainly if not a guide, then an instruction book 
or a class, online class, or reading case studies that have been compiled, blogs, you know, these sorts of things to have an idea. Even attending retreats, this is where I was first introduced to these concepts, was attending retreats and, and witnessing other people being guided through the processes, me myself getting guided through the processes, and, and then having different learning, uh, learning times where the content was delivered. This was immeasurably helpful to give me context because without context, a lot of this will just make sense theoretically and the practice of it won't be as, as effective. And so I wouldn't recommend doing it alone starting out. I'm now able to do it alone for myself because I have a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of practice experience and learning under my belt and a lot of mentoring. But that would not be the case and was not the case when I first started with this work. Mm-hmm. And so how, how does I'm trying to make the connection with you get underneath, you get below the sexual fantasy with the, what the material is there, some frozen needs from childhood. How does that begin to heal that anxious or avoidant attachment style? So the, the, the mind and the emotions and the body are, you know, they're a, a cohesive system. So they all work synergistically together. And so mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. attachment style might not be affected directly right away by the exploration of one particular sexual fantasy, mm-hmm. but it's like a, mm-hmm. a house of cards, if you will. If you mm-hmm. tend to one piece, then it affects the, uh, affects the entire system. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that part's really important to hold in mind. There could also be, not just a sexual fantasy exploration, but in this context, in the sense of exploring fantasy, for me, I have fewer and fewer sexual fantasies because I've explored many of them and unpacked mm-hmm. them, whereas these days I have more of what I call emotional fantasies. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, receiving nurturing, loving attention, like these very, very emotion-based fantasies that in a lot of ways mm-hmm. relate directly to to infancy, to childhood, to to early, early parts of life. It's very pre-verbal time. So for me to simulate, you know, to enter into an emotional fantasy, to kind of pull it out of my imaginal realm and bring it to life with a partner uh, or with a friend even, you know, just being held, uh, that's also an opportunity to drop below the surface because in those moments of being held and, you know, cuddled in just the right, healthiest, most beautiful way, where am I blocking nourishment, the nourishment of that experience, or where am I letting it in, and what emotions are coming up for me? And do I block the emotions, or can I allow them to flow through? Like the grief of maybe not have received enough of that particular type of attention as a baby or as a child, you know, just allow Mm -hmm. the grief and the confusion of that to move through the system and out, and there's a whole nervous system reset that accompanies that mm. that can then translate mm. into a life reset. I see. Cool. That's really powerful. So I want to move on to another thing that you talked about. What are erotic blueprints and how do they relate to the relationship style that we choose? So erotic blueprints are something that we're – Compiled, created and compiled, if you will, by a woman named Jaya, J-A-I-Y-A. And she's also a wonderful sex educator in Southern California. I believe her website is MissJaya.com. 
So she is who I learned about erotic blueprints from, and I'm a huge fan of them. They helped to they helped put a, a lot of understanding in place for me around my own eroticism and sexuality. And so in brief, the five erotic blueprints are uh, people who are energetically oriented in their, or, or, in their eroticism, meaning they're aroused uh, eye-gazing or energy play. They are able to tune into very subtle energies. They don't need a lot of stimulation. They easily feel kundalini and kriyas. And they're mm-hmm. much more turned on by the energetic realm. Then you mm-hmm. have the sensual, two or more of the romantics. And so they love massages and having the senses activated, smells and tastes and touches. And they enjoy a lot of foreplay and um, hot baths and beautiful music and all, that, all those things. And then you have the sexual blueprint. That's the third blueprint. These people are, they don't need foreplay. They want to just get into it and they love nakedness, <laughs> naked bodies, genitals, fucking. And they love all these wonderful activities that are very sexual, very explicitly bodily oriented. They love bodily fluids, on and on. Um, things that would, you know, maybe repulse a sensual are a huge turn on for a sexual. And things that would be boring to a sexual are, are, uh, eternally necessary for a sensual. And mm. then the fourth blueprint is the kinky folks. So these are the people who first and foremost are turned on by kink, whether that is sensation play, so impact play, or whether that's psychological, and the dom-sub power exchange. And so that's the fourth blueprint. And then the fifth blueprint is called the shapeshifter. And so these are people who, not so much that they can shapeshift to meet the needs of whatever lover or partner they're playing with. That's not what a shapeshifter is. Thanks to the true true definition of a shapeshifter, a shapeshifter is someone who they themselves need all of the other four blueprints to be sexually satisfied. Mm. They Mm. love variety and versatility. They can be easily bored. They're very sexually experienced. That's why they love that whole rainbow of um, experiences and erotic arousal. And so an erotic blueprint, when you know your erotic blueprint, it gives you a, a knowledge of what you need, typically, you know, more times than not, what you need first and foremost to become aroused. And so, for mm-hmm. example, someone who is a sensual, they love the sensual, the more romantic, emotional, intimacy, sensual play, sensorial play type of things first then as they become more aroused by those, then their interest in kink might show up a little bit later or Mm. their interest in the more explicit sexual activities might show up a little bit later. So I see those doors that open in a certain order, depending on what Mm -hmm. your blueprint is. And certainly some Mm. blueprints are more compatible with other blueprints. And um, I don't have a direct, haven't haven't come up with or identified a, a direct correlation between blueprints and relationship styles but certainly the blueprints I see play a part in the satisfaction within any type of relationship. And that's well, relationship yeah, I could see a case for non-monogamy here because if you, you're, you're with somebody and you're not the same blueprint, then if there's agreement, if there's consent, then maybe they could meet, get some of their blueprint met outside from another partner. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that exactly. most frequently with kink, where you might have a couple that's compatible on many levels as far as um, 
you know, they have a really great emotional connection and they um, are nesting partners. They may share a business. They may have children. But one of them wants more kink and the other one's just not interested in that at all. So they're able to open the relationship for the person to get that kink need met. I see that very often. Uh, it's a really common reason for open relationship. But I, but when you map out all these other things, I can see a lot of other areas where somebody might want to play with body fluids more, where, and the central person would be like, ooh, that's so disgusting. Why do you, <laughs> why do you have to do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that's really so cool. it, as we become more and more complex uh, in terms of our evolution as humans, you know, we're evolving in all these different directions all the time, becoming more and more complex. Some of us become more and more complicated, but I like the word complex. And in that sense, you know, having these alternatives and these varieties and these options. Of, of different relationship styles and different blueprints of different types of people to play and explore with, uh, it, it all makes sense why all of these things will be part of the greater tapestry of life. And, and people mm-hmm. will find where they fit in that tapestry as they move along. I think it's quite beautiful. Right. Excellent. Well, I noticed that you really have a strong basis in spirituality. So I want to ask you, how do monogamy and non-monogamy contribute to a spirit or how can they contribute to a spiritual path? Yeah. So my spiritual path has had quite a few iterations. I was raised Catholic and then I shifted into Eastern philosophies first with Taoism for a number of years and then into Buddhism uh, when I moved to Northern California. And now more recently, my focus has landed in uh, paganism and earth spirituality, very feminine and Mm -hmm. goddess focused spirituality. And so having all these different iterations has exposed me to a lot of different energy cultivation and sexual practices. You know, certainly the Taoists have their practices. The Buddhists have some of theirs, a lot of which are um, more in the, in the very subtle energy realms and um, spiritual realms. And then the Tantricas have theirs that tend to explore more in the in the, in the embodied realm. They call it the lightning path. So you use the body for your, your spiritual unfolding, unfoldings. And then the pagans and paganism and, and, and the Druids and all of these different Celtic paths have their own beautiful sexual practices with a lot of intentionality. And so in terms of spiritual path, how I've defined that for myself, because there's so many different types of spirituality to study and explore. For me, my path has been one of, 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 of gnosis, of that greater knowledge with a capital K that ultimately becomes wisdom. And a huge part of that for me has been self-knowledge, learning about self as a way to transcend the, the egoic self and merge more with the, the larger self or the divine. And so relationship and sexuality can be very effective catalyzers for uncovering the self and helping one to get to know the self uh, through all the mistakes that we make, <laughs> through all the ways we're on the receiving end of somebody else's mistakes and mess-ups. You know, how do we navigate those through all our good days and bad days, we're constantly learning about ourselves. 
and uh, every nuance of life and every every twist and turn of life. And a teacher of mine is known to say, and the tantricas in general are known to say, every moment is a teacher. Every opportunity is a guru. And, um, and that is encouragement to embrace everything that happens to us and neither prefer it or reject it, ultimately to arrive mm-hmm. at equanimity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you talked earlier about the non-dual path, meaning uh, about the, uh, when things repel you. So if we aren't there yet where we're at perfect equanimity, what do we do <laughs> when we notice that something repels us? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, first is the noticing. Really, that's the, the, the start of any journey is the noticing where you're at right now in this moment. Mm-hmm. And, and the noticing what are the emotions, feelings, sensations that I'm feeling in relation to this and immersing in those sensations. And a good place to practice is not judging the part of self that is repulsed by or is wanting to and is currently rejecting this experience or person or moment. And uh, so we first start by loving the self that is doing the rejecting. You make that okay. Mm. So that mm-hmm. is a first step towards equanimity. And then when that experience gets activated again and we're drawn to reject again, then we have a little bit more self-awareness, a little bit more resilience to stay steady and notice I'm wanting to reject this again. I'm, I'm feeling repulsed again. Okay, let me move one step or two steps closer to the core wound that is inside of this rejection. You know, so just step by step. It can be a very gentle process because a lot of times there's a lot of intensity in those moments. And so the more that we can love whatever is arising, we can embrace whatever is arising, allowing it to be a teacher and teach us, then before we know it, we dwell in the experience of no preference. Now imagine moving through life where you have no preference about what happens around you or to you or with you. Not to say that you will put yourself in dangerous situations. It's more that what used to be so important that things go a certain way and look a certain way no longer has the same import. That's a free and liberated place to live. Yes. And that's one of the main tenets I teach about transforming jealousy into compersion is learning to mm-hmm. uh, accept what is. Because <laughs> often we can go to exactly. victim place, like that wasn't fair and that shouldn't happen. And it's like, well, but that did happen. So <laughs> let's just be with what is. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that victim place, so that the it's not fair place. And, um, Really, at the end of the day, there's a little small child inside of us who's the one pouting and saying those things and feeling abandoned and feeling really sad. And You know, what a golden opportunity for us to turn inward and embrace that young child instead of requiring that our partner do that for us. And and, and attending to the inner relationship, we free up so much energy that then really lets our partners off the hook more and more as we cultivate that inner resilience. And at the end of the day, right. it's that inner resilience that that brings so much blessing to all our relations. Yeah, and ironically, our partners show up even bigger because we're not 
we're showing up as an adult instead of a child with them. <laughs> exactly. We're not making child demands on another mm-hmm. adult as an adult. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, Claire, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a delight speaking with you, and you certainly have a, a breadth of expertise, and I feel like we could go on for a lot longer, but we're almost out of time, <laughs> and I want to give you a chance to um, let people know how they can reach you and what you're offering. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have a couple of minutes, so anything else that you didn't have time to share? Awesome. Thank you, Simiti. This has been a real treat, and I'm very grateful for the invitation. And so for anyone who has whose curiosity has been piqued by what you've heard today, you can find me at my website. One of them is www.yoursensualwisdom.com, Y-O-U-R, yoursensualwisdom.com. And that's my personal coaching site and personal mentoring site. And on that site, you'll find ways that we can work together if you're interested in exploring any of the topics that tonight or that came up in the conversation today. And the other website that you can find me at is www.yourimpeccabletouch.com. Again, Y-O-U-R, your impeccable, I-M-P-E-C-C-A-B-L-E, touch.com. And that is a website I share with a friend and colleague of mine named Charlie Glickman. And he and I do work together as well as individually, primarily working with couples and teaching touch and communication and erotic blueprints, oriented material, and coming into an understanding of each other and of the relationship in order to experience the healthiest and most satisfying of relating, regardless of relationship style or fantasy style or anything like that. And so yoursensualwisdom.com and yourimpeccabletouch.com. And one of the things I enjoy most in life is working with individuals and couples, helping them explore, as as was explained in my bio, explore yourself as a multidimensional sexual, spiritual, and relational being because there's so much about life packed into those areas of life. So I love explaining that to people. That sounds fabulous. Thank you so much. All right. Well, I hope you have a great evening. Yes, you too. Everyone else out there, thank you so much. Good night. Okay, good night. Okay, so we will be, um, I'll be on vacation next week, so join us on uh, April 23rd for the next episode of Leading Edge Love Radio. Good night, everyone.